Today's uh, passage of scripture comes from Galatians chapter 6, verse 17. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Perhaps some of you might recall last week I had said that Galatians was done, but it is making a reprise. <laughs> one more week. And if you were here last week, you might have noted that this verse was actually in the passage of Scripture that I, we had covered, but I essentially skipped this verse. And primarily it was to focus it on this week because I thought it really makes a lot of sense to do it today as we're praying for the world, the persecuted church, and just, just recognizing how so many people before us have suffered for the sake of Christ. Um, we are going to look at this verse through the lens of a couple of notes. First is that this verse reminds us of these identity marks. And then secondly, that these identity marks, we want to describe them also as gospel marks. And I hope this will make sense to you as we go through this passage. So first, identity marks in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. For Paul's audience, there would immediately have been an idea that came to their heads when they read something like this, because it was so commonplace in Paul's day, which is the, the system of slavery. And in slavery, the slave often bore the mark of the owner. And... In Paul's day, the church that he was preaching to, the Galatian church and churches, there were slaves and owners inside the church. And I know that's just something that we can't comprehend in our day and age. We also have to leave behind a lot of the, the systems of the way of, we think about such things because this is 2,000 years earlier than today. And so the framework of the way in which people thought was quite different than today. But you had the gospel, and the gospel goes out. It's proclaimed the good news, the message of Christ, and it's meant for anyone. It doesn't matter what ethnicity they are, whether they're a man or a woman, or whether they're a slave or free. It just crossed all barriers, all groups, all classifications of people. That's the power of the gospel is that it's intended for everyone, regardless of where they've come from. And so when we look at this passage, when we think about this idea of slavery and the marks of slavery and the marks of ownership, I can't help but also go back to a passage uh, such as Galatians 6, 14, 15, where Paul, again, goes back to saying, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We spend a lot of time on that. And then moving forward, we go to Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 18. Another message that Paul gives to some churches in Rome where he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I mean, listen to what Paul's saying. He's saying that 
And he's telling the church, he's telling people like me and you, you were once slaves to sin, and now you're slaves to righteousness. Now that might take you by surprise because you might think to yourself, I'm no one's slave. I'm not a slave to sin nor to righteousness. So don't call me a slave because that is really a bad word to use today in our contemporary culture. But Paul's saying, no, you are. And the real question is, is this true? And if it is, what does Paul mean by saying that we're a slave, whether it's to sin or to righteousness? Slavery is this idea that something or someone owns you. And you might really then get offended by that and say, no one owns me. But when we think about it spiritually speaking in the way that Paul describes it, it's not about a a physical branding per se, but rather that there is something that controls you against your will, against your ability to say no. Something determines how you are going to live, and it's not you. And when he says that we're slaves to sin, He's saying that there's some desire, something internal within your system and your soul that says, you, you say, I can't say no. I can't say no to this, no matter how much I try. So for example, when there is a, you have a, maybe a dog, a pet, and if you're not the most fastidious of owners, your dog might decide, I'm going to eat whatever there is around anywhere. And they're going to go up to the dinner table and jump onto the table and eat. And you might say, no, get down. And, you know, it's, it's literally to a point, if they're not disciplined, they can't help themselves. They have to do it. And they can't say no to themselves. If you have a plate of food right in front of them, unless you discipline them and train them, their instinct is to devour it. And they literally cannot say no, whether it's in eating or in mating or whatever it might be. In an animal, there is an instinct. And that instinct is so powerful that it drives that animal, whether it's a bear or a dog or a squirrel, it it can't help itself. It's going to do what it's going to do. Well, that's the essence of what Paul is saying is that when we human beings cannot control our lusts, our urges, our appetites, then we are no different. We are actually what Paul would say, we are enslaved to that thing. Why is it that when a man and a woman go before an efficient and promise covenant before God and before all these people and say, I I promise, I will covenant to you that you are the one for me. And whether even to death do us part, I don't think that person is being insincere. When they see their bride and their groom and they're mesmerized by that, the beauty and the the splendor of that event, I, I have no doubt that that man and that woman is genuinely sincere in saying, I, I know I will not break that vow. And yet they do. They do perhaps in their lusts pornography, maybe in in, an actual physical adultery. Well, what is it that brings that person, that man, that woman to that place? They're enslaved by their lust. They can't say no. And you might, if you're the, you know, um, the victim of that, 
You might say, you had the opportunity to say no, but you, you didn't. Well, their sinful nature enslaves them to their lust. But it's not just to sex. It's also to liquor, to drugs, to shopping, to work, to sports, to staring at our phones. All of that shows us that actually there's no freedom at all. When we fast, and every year we take about the third week of January to spend a week of prayer and fasting. And that week of fasting, fasting is but a reminder that says, I am not driven and enslaved by whatever it is, food, um, by strong drink, by my entertainments, by movie watching, uh, whatever it might be, I decide to intentionally fast from whatever it is because I want my own heart as well as the Lord to know that that doesn't enslave me. It doesn't control me. That's the purpose of fasting. It's, it's not just simply a, you know, some sort of thing we do that's a religious ritual. It's just to remind ourselves that we're not slaves. We're not, empower, we're not enslaved by something. I like the way Pastor Tim Keller describes it. He says, every human being is involved in covenant service with something. We are all bond servants to some God. We all worship something. We all feel pulled and controlled by directives and orders coming deep from within. We are all yielding our bodies to some inner Lord, which then works its will out in the world through our bodies. So the question is not, are you a slave to something? The question is, who is your master? Because we are all owned by something or someone. We are all controlled by something or someone. Whether it's, again, all of those things that I listed, even good things, control us. It dictates how we live, how we think. For example, I think for those of you who are parents, children so often control us. And you know it by how much we spend our time thinking about them, being controlled by their actions or their poor actions. If our instinct is to grow angry and it wells up because they act a certain way, well, there's a clear indicator that something is controlling us. And for those of you and me who tries your best with all your will and might say, I've, I'm not going to get angry anymore. I'm not going to get angry at my kids. But then, boom, you know, spilled this or they, you know, they, they weren't, they had grease on their hands and put it all over the walls and you told them already, don't do that. It just starts flooding out of your soul. Why is that? Because there's an enslavement of our sinful nature. It drives us to the way that we think. And our children show us that they what John Calvin describes as they hook our idols. They actually take something and it pulls us. I think it's very interesting to note that, you know, when uh, Abraham, when he had his son Isaac, Isaac was, he, Abraham was very old at the time. He waited almost five decades for Isaac to be born. God had promised Abraham, I promise you, Abraham, I'll provide for you a son. Imagine waiting for that promise to be fulfilled decades later, right? So finally, Isaac comes along, and when he's around 12 years old, God says, okay, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your 
And the Genesis writer, uh, Moses, describes it this way, your only son, and I want you to take him up the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. You know, here's the thing is that this boy was Abraham's life. It was also representative of the promises of God. His view of God and his view of his own life was dictated by how he viewed like this act because his son controlled his life. And what God wanted to make sure that Abraham knew very clearly was that I want you more than anything else. I want, I want you to love me more than your wife, Sarah, and your son, Isaac. The very son that I promised you, I want you to love me more. I want you to care for me more. It is so interesting that that happened to someone, to Abraham, who placed all his hope in that child. Now, fast forward to us. I think so often we place our hope, our, our dreams, and yes, even our worship into our children. And I think that happens, and we see a little bit of taste of that when perhaps, let's say, let's say someone were to critique your child, a teacher at school. What is your first instinct? Is it to say, what have you done, Johnny? Or is it to say, you know what? Uh, something's wrong with the teacher. So my child never makes such mistakes. Can we, can we have people in our sphere in our world who actually speaks into our lives about our own children. It's very hard. That is the one taboo area of all men and women when it comes to parenting is that I can say whatever I want to my child, my wife can, but no one else better do that. But when I have such a heart, it really does reveal one thing, is that I have a very lofty view of this person, and it is controlling my life. And so that's just one example of so many. There are so many areas where we are being controlled, and it, it works its way out through anger, anger towards a child, anger towards a teacher, anger towards a friend, anger towards a family member, and we see how it all plays out, and it just controls everything about us, and we can't even think or imagine do anything distinctively different. In this way, we are all yielding our bodies to some inner Lord, which then works its will out in the world through our bodies. So who is your master? Who controls you? What, do you what, is, what is in your life that you say, if someone were to say, I want you to stop doing that? How about tonight you don't drink? How about you, you bypass that glass of wine today? How about you... Come home from work early instead of trying to always get ahead. Is there anger that rises up? What's wrong with that? How dare you say that to me? If the anger rises, if the irritability increases, then you know someone has hooked your idol. And the Lord is saying, Sam, I want you to climb the mountain today. Some of you need to climb mountains. All of us do today. And there's an altar up there, and the Lord is saying, I want you to put it on that altar and get ready. You're going to have to dive the dagger into that, that, whatever that is, your career path. 
your spouse, your friendships, your child. Whatever that is, it is controlling us. That has become our identity. But for Paul, we see he chose a different master. Before, it was all about circumcision, the marks of a legalistic, self-righteous lifestyle. Whatever I do is what makes me worthwhile, good, favorable, special. And as long as I do those things, if I get the right group of people around me who like me, if I get the grades that I've worked hard for, if I you know, become MVP of my team, if I, whatever it is, it's, that is the circumcision that Paul speaks of. Something that defines me by my efforts and merit. But when Paul came to see and take on a new owner, he was no longer going to be a slave to himself and to sin, but now a slave to righteousness. Suddenly, he would hear these incredible words that Jesus says of every person who trusts in him. Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful servant. When we place our identity as one who is under the submission of God, we will hear those perfect those words from a perfectly good and righteous heavenly father who really loves you and who gave himself for you through his son, Jesus. So we can be free to love others rightly while not being enslaved by a desire to gain others' love, affection, or admiration in this world. And so how is this possible? It's possible through what I think are called gospel marks. It's not just identity marks, but it's a gospel mark. And again, look at that verse again. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. And Paul's saying all these you know, Judaizers, these false teachers who are preaching a works-based righteousness, you need to do these things to be someone special, to be God's people, to be loved by God. If you don't do these things, you're not. And Paul, he's preaching a completely wrong message. And Paul's saying, let no one cause me trouble. All those guys, they're preaching a wrong message. And you want to know how I can prove this to you? I bear the marks of Jesus on my body. And what Paul does is here, he does two things. He compares these marks and he contrasts these marks. So we'll first look at the contrast. The problem in the Galatian church were these false teachers. And they believed there was a mark to salvation. The mark to salvation was circumcision, a physical mark that had a spiritual implication. And it was this mark of the flesh that said, if once you, if you have a baby, baby boy, on the eighth day, if you're a believer of Christ, yes, I believe in Jesus, but you also should get your baby circumcised. Because if you do, then it really proves that you are a true follower of Jesus. You're not just a Christian, you're a true Christian when you do that. And Paul's saying, absolutely not. That's anti-gospel. That's not the good news. Because we know this, is that Jesus himself was a slave. And if we get hung up with the idea of, I'm no one's slave, well, never forget that God himself enslaved himself. The way Paul describes this is in Philippians 2.8. He says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient, really in essence, by becoming a slave to death, even death on a cross. And he enslaves himself so that he can free us and place us under a new protection, no longer under the protection of the world because it never satisfies, but under God's protection through Christ. And his goal is to provide for you utmost joy so that you truly can be free. And it's a freedom that this world cannot understand. As parents, it's one of our greatest desires is to see our children learn from our mistakes. I mean, I think that's, that's always our hope. There's an old saying that says that youth is wasted on the young. And it's, it's so true. I mean, how many of us, I know I feel this way, is if I could just have taken my 52-year-old brain and put it into my 14-year-old head, it would have saved me a lot of heartache. And I could have just been so much more productive in life. But that's what I sort of want for my own children, right? And that's how we think. Just listen to me. I've lived this life for almost five decades. I know some of you are not five decades, four decades, three decades. And if you just get it, everything will be so much better. One of the things I tell my kids is just get things done in advance. Don't procrastinate. Don't procrastinate. Because if you do, you will enjoy so much more. Because if you do your work in advance, then you can hang out with your friends. If you can hang out with your friends, that's so much more fun. But if you hold off and fiddle away and do all sorts of things and waste your time, you don't have time to enjoy life. Work hard, play hard. It's a really great motto in a certain sense. And that's what freedom is. Freedom is that. And I've been preaching this to my own children. But how much more our Savior must think that way for us? I mean, if I'm saying five decades, if you just understand I'm this much older than you, just learn this lesson and you'll have so much more of a better life. Well, our God is an eternally old God. He is the ancient of days. He has lived eternally. And through his word, he's saying, trust me. You're living your life for but a pittance. I know it feels good for the moment, just like I tell my own children. You know, doing, you know, going out and hanging out with your friends, that's cool. But if it's at the cost of your future, then you're, you're frittering away your time. I'm not saying you shouldn't hang out with your friends, but you should do your work first, then do that. And it takes a perspective. That perspective is something that, as for people who are older, are trying to always give that to the younger. But our God is eternally more wise than us, infinitely more, infinitely older. He, has, he knows what is our, for our utmost eternal joy. And he gives us his word just like we give to our own children. Here's words of advice. But then just like our children, we say, yeah, but I just want to live this life. I just want to experience it for myself. And then we throw up our hands and say, oh, okay, go ahead, do whatever you want. It's, it's tragic when we fail to learn the very lessons that we're trying to impart on those whom we love. But unlike us, our God is perfect in the way that he imparts his love and his knowledge and his information. And so don't, he's telling us, don't settle for your position at work or your career. 
that causes perhaps for you to, you work so hard that you forget about meeting with the Lord individually, corporately. Yes, your house will be bigger. Yes, you'll have a nicer car. Yes, you'll have a better nest egg for a few years of retirement. You'll have, your children will have more toys to play with. But when you are taking your last breath, I have a feeling you will not be wishing that you lived in a bigger house. I don't think you're going to be thinking about your children's grades in third grade or the piano lessons that you should have given to them because then they would have been really great, you know, to a certain extent. Or the tournament where your son did not hit the game-winning hit but instead struck out. Or the dance competition that was lost in the last second. If you just practiced more, it would have been great. See, our God, he sees things eternally. One of the things, yesterday I had the uh, privilege of, took, uh, took some time at Yosemite. And, and I know some of you have gone there. For, for those of you who have not yet done so, you must go. And I was walking through Yosemite Valley with a, a few people. And you see the grandeur of the you know, this, just the stones and the granite and all the different half dome and El Capitan and you walk through and you see the large redwood trees and in the midst of it, it just feels so small. I, mean, I couldn't imagine. I just felt really, really tiny relative to Yosemite. And this is exactly what we need to experience one of the reasons why we're doing this today, praying for our world, is you have to realize we're more than just trying to live this small little life and being comfortable with it. And if you try to live that way, you just feel so empty. It always, you're look, we're always looking for that next thing that makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. But it will never last. It will always fail to provide what we're looking for. And that's Paul's whole point with this whole idea of what the uh, false teachers uh, consider this important mark, the mark of circumcision, the mark of marking your way in the world, of being somebody special and important and doing something, being liked, being popular, maybe at school, you know, being the most popular person at school. Whatever it might be, something that you do makes you special. And my friends, that's, that's a really lonely road. And Paul's saying we weren't created anew for that. We're meant for so much more. Here's the thing about people who are saved. Let's say someone is a drug addict, completely addicted to heroin, to all sorts, to meth, whatever it might be, turn to Christ, and they're born again. They're made anew. And then they go to church, and as they enter into church, the, the th things that they hear from church members and the pastor is, hey, make sure that whatever you do, don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs anymore, don't curse. Um, you have to make sure that you serve in this capacity and do all these things. And then you're a really good Christian. You know what that's called? slavery. That's called circumcision again. It's, it's just in now from an irreligious state to a religious state, from a licentious state to a legalistic state. 
And it goes back to, and no wonder why so many Christians are so tired and weary and worn. Because we're still living the life of believing that I need to do something in order for God to accept me. And we teach that, we live it, we think it. And Paul's saying, that's exactly not the case. That is the mark of circumcision. For Paul, the marks of the crucified Christ reveal that we have nothing, not a single thing that God expects for you to give to him that he's going to say, all right, you're really ready now. I, I find it so, um, so humbling and as well as interesting to find that one of the things that I hear quite often is a person who, as they're thinking about serving in a particular area of ministry, I often hear the phrase, I don't know if I'm ready yet, spiritually, before the Lord. And I think when you wait for that place to be ready, I don't know if you're really ready. There never is a ready. It's always God just activating based on sheer grace alone. We're never good enough. We're never holy enough. And it's truly a merciful grace that God uses us in our woeful state. We come at church on Sunday and we say, I don't think I could pray because God, because I've had a really tough week. I don't think I could sit in this room and listen to a sermon because I don't feel ready. The dangerous part of that is we actually think there are times where God does hear us because we had a really good week or because we were spiritually high enough, or we went on a retreat and revival, we came back, and now we're ready to sing and praise God, and that's when we're really ready. But on the day that we had a really sinful, woeful week, God isn't ready to hear us. Do you see what happens? It's so subtle, this idea that somehow God accepts us solely on the basis of what I think is when he, we're righteous enough. And when that happens... I go back to losing the gospel. Jesus didn't need to be crucified. It's all about me. It's all about me. We're never ready to serve him. We're never ready to pray to him. Not ready enough. We're never ready enough to sit in this room and listen to God's word. You're never good enough to say, I'm sorry. You're never ready enough to accept apologies from another person. It's just sheer grace. God forgave me, therefore I forgive. God forgave me, therefore I pray. That God forgave me, therefore I serve. God forgave me, therefore I am there with open arms. Nothing in the, my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, as Augustus Toplady says in Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. If we don't really understand that state of being as a Christian, we don't understand the cross at all. So that's the contrast, the contrast of the marks of circumcision, which is so contrasted from the marks of crucifixion. The mark of circumcision is everything I do makes me righteous, good, holy, just. The mark of crucifixion is there is nothing I bring simply to the cross I cling. But the comparison is Paul says, I bear these marks. They're physical marks. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. And when they beat you, it was 40 lashes minus one. 
And if you've ever seen a Roman lash, on the whip, at the end are these, they stick on metal pieces. Um, I mean, just, I've had my finger split open, uh, my, my son had his finger split open. I've had cut a cut due to glass. It hurts. Well, imagine with sort of all these lashes and these metal shards being tied in on the end, you're tied up and they take this whip and slice it on your back over and over 39 times. And you can't sleep. Everything, you're, you're just, your whole body is absolutely paralyzed. He bore those marks. So if you were to be able to look at Paul's back, it would have been shredded with scars. And when he thinks about these lashes, he's saying, what is there is not just the physical lash, but it's the idea that I bear the very marks of Christ, that I get the opportunity to suffer. And there are many people around the world. Some of these flags represent some of the most repressive regimes in all this world. We're simply doing what we're doing. You'd automatically be imprisoned. And imagine if there was the cost, not just of you being imprisoned, but also what would happen to your family? Well, a lot of them would be struggling with poverty. They would be absolutely in, in dire straits. A lot of pastors and lay people are imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, some even losing their lives. And Paul's saying, if you are a believer of Christ, then remember that you worship a crucified Christ. And that's why when these people come up and pray, we're joining them. I hope you don't see it as a ritual, as this is a nice program to do because we're a church. But I do believe in the power that God brings. And I, in talking to different missionaries and pastors around the world, whom we are connected with, they literally are crying out to us for our prayers. They so appreciate them. And you, it would be, I wish I could spend the rest, next half hour t telling you story after story of so many of these answered prayers, your prayers, and the impact that it's making globally for the sake of the gospel. And Paul's telling us that we do this together. When he bore these marks, it was for the church, for me and you. And it was to remind us we worship a crucified Christ. We are together in this. We're one body. Don't ever forget it. And it is our power, our strength of coming together. This past year and a half of COVID where we're separated, there was serious damage done in our own hearts and in our ability to come together. And if we're honest with ourselves, you would see it. But when we, the power that we have in Christ is to come together. Let me just close with this story. Uh, as you all know, George Sneeman is uh, one of our gospel partners and he is just someone that is, yeah, talk about a man who just lives by faith all the time. Well, he told me the story this week. I always get, I mean, he's a master storyteller, so he told me the story. He met this old man uh, and in Goma. This is in the DRC, which is a war-torn area. And as they were walking, they came across a, a grove of trees. Now, this is a rarity because, you know, it's a war-torn area. What was interesting about this grove was that it almost seemed like there were families of trees, five trees together in one area, and then another, then another, then another. It was sort of unique looking. And he, he was asking the old man, well, what is this? And the old man had said, well, my great-grandfather planted these trees. 
And one of the things that he had said is that these trees represent families. And it represents us staying together as Christians, as a family. And he described how in the past uh, 25 years, there have been four major wars in that region. And whenever the guns started firing and rebel forces or soldier, um, um, government forces started coming, everyone who was part of the church would run to the valley. So they would all be in the mountains. They would run to the valley. And down in the valley was the church. Now, you would think that running to a central location where you're supposed to find safety, that that wouldn't be the safest place. And valleys tend not to be the safest place. But what they found is that they would always say, let's all go together. And so they'd all run. But not everyone would go. Most would go, and a few would straggle off and run to what they thought were the safer places, which is in the mountains. In these 25 years of four different wars, everyone who ran to the church in the valley never lost their life. And to this day, they were still strong, worshiping the Lord and safe. But those who ran into the mountains on their own with maybe two, one or two people with their family, they were either killed, they ran out of resources and were living in abject poverty, but most of all, they were living in despair because they were so alone. Whereas those who ran to the church, they were thriving and growing and living life, thriving as best as you can in that area. This is the point of what it means when Paul says we bear this mark. Paul bears the mark on his body so that we can thrive. We can grow. We can suffer. But the point of it is that we have to be together. And we're together as an individual body of Christ, but we're together with the wider body of Christ. And we do this together to remember there's a grandeur of God. Until we see that, until we see that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, until we get that, we'll never understand what the gospel is all about. So, what we do today is we are telling the care workers in Goma or those in prison in China and North Korea or those who are being persecuted for the sake of the gospel in Afghanistan and Iraq, we're telling them that they're not alone. We are together. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we are not alone in this world, that we are together in Christ. We ask, O oh Lord, that as we prepare to take this bread and wine, that we would see this as but a sign of our unity together in Jesus, as one body locally and then globally, knowing that we are with you. We ask that you would guide us, O oh Lord, and direct our time. May we worship you with even this act. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.